Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, everybody. I, not not that we have guests. Not that we ever have unspecial guests. Like I don't want former guests who are listening to to feel uh broken hearted and and beaten down when i say that we have a special guest because they right no one wants to hear that but but it's it's like in the specialness of all our guests there's there's one that is rising up a little specialer right now where we have on author mark kurlansky and i'm sure like everybody out there is familiar with some of his books um in in my world for sure. Um, being familiar with Mark's book, Cod and his book, salt, which seemed to make its way, you know, onto every coffee table and bookshelf in the country. Also the author of 1968, the big oyster, a world without fish. And we're here today to talk about Mark's new book, salmon and about salmon in general. So, uh, welcome Mark. Thanks for joining us. And we're still in like our COVID-19 recording situation where, much to you know, much to my chagrin, we are not in the same room together. Mark is is holed up in Manhattan, but thanks for joining us, Mark. It's my pleasure. Be nice to be in Montana right now, but what can I do? No, I think relative to many other places in the country, we have it pretty good right now, even though we are still under you know stay at home orders by the government. But um, 
it's it's pretty good place to pretty decent place to do that. I uh, I I caught this. I this is one on one of my top questions, and we we already talked about it just as we were setting up our equipment. Uh, you're a fisherman. Explain your explain your fishing life a little bit to people. Well, um, yeah, I've I've always been a fisherman. Uh, for a small time when I was young, I was a commercial fisherman. Oh, I did. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm from New England. Uh huh. And um, when I was getting out of high school, I thought, what could be better than to, you know, fish on commercial boats and uh, and it, and I actually did love it, but I was young. <laughs> it gets to be gets to be less fun as you get older. But uh, I've also always been a sports fisherman. I I, I started off like uh, most uh, New England kids who don't have a lot of money, um, surf casting for stripers and blues. Which you know, if you ever surf casted, what what that does is it it gets you obsessed with the art of casting. And once you become obsessed with the art of casting, you inevitably go to fly fishing. And, Nowadays, uh, fly fishing is a, most of the time is the only fishing I do. Every once in a while, I go to the ocean. Your book on on salmon. Um, I hate to. Say, I don't want to say this. I hope people listen to the whole interview because I don't want to start out on a sour note. But your 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 book on salmon winds up. Uh, you provide a pretty dim view on what the future of these creatures is uh and you you catalog this centuries long collapse that's that's ongoing today this collapse of salmon stocks and salmon fisheries you know you know around the world where salmon can be found but i find that right away and starting to go through your book i noticed that you would now and then speak fondly or empathetically of commercial fishermen and you even give some recipes and talk about cooking salmon and eating salmon. And I got to wonder if you were writing a book about the collapse of the elephant, somehow it seems that you would not put elephant recipes in that book. Can, well, can, can you explain how those things can coexist? Yeah, because there, there, there isn't a sustainable, um, elephant hunting system. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there is for salmon. Um, uh, salmon is actually uh, one of the easier fish to regulate a fishery for because they're very predictable and we know what they're doing and when they're doing it. Um, and really all you have to do is count the number of fish that go up a river to spawn, which you can do from a tower or from an airplane. I mean, you can just see them. And when enough fish have spawned, you, then you tell the fishermen, okay, for a certain number of hours now you can fish. And this works quite well in the few places where there's still a he healthy salmon runs. But, you know, the reason I decided to do this book was because in 1997, I came out with my book on cod. And this was as the uh, northern stock in the Grand Banks was collapsing. And people were really, for the first time, seriously thinking about the problems of overfishing and regulating commercial fisheries. Um, 
I, I mean, the general public was fishermen. I mean, when I was on commercial boats in the 1960s, it was all fishermen talked about. But now by the end of the 1990s, people were thinking about it. And, and that's what my book was about. And <clears throat> since then, I've been monitoring fisheries and what's going on. And it's become clear to me that uh, overfishing and regulating fisheries is a minor problem. It's one of the smaller problems. In fact, if you could find a fishery where that was the only problem, it would be wonderful. It would be so relatively easy to fix. But the problems are far more complex than that. And I thought that salmon was the perfect way to make that point because being an anadromous fish living both in freshwater and in the ocean, it gets hit by everything that we do wrong. So the problem is not that we're eating fish or fishing them commercially. Um, the fact is, there's places like most of the uh, areas of Atlantic salmon, there is no commercial fishery anymore. And the fish are still becoming rarer and rarer. So, I mean, what's going on? You know, there's deforestation, there's building dams, there's pollution, there's bad farming practices, there's urban sprawl, and there's climate change and climate change and climate change. Huge problem. And so basically, if you want to save the salmon, all you really have to do is save the earth and then it'll be saved. <laughs> yeah. In the intro at the, the end of the, the book has a prologue that starts out with a couple, uh, you know, biography biographies or more like character portraits of a couple different commercial salmon fishermen and then you you end the prologue by remarking how you know there's still is it's remarkable that we still have a commercial fishery for salmon and you say that this isn't a book about overfishing and it's like a, like a very it feels like an very important and a very important point you want to make um but you go into like what it would take to save salmon and you list some things that seems so uh, impossible that it left me wondering um, if we had some wiggle room in there because the things that we would need to do, frankly, are very, very hard to picture us pulling that together. And so it left me wondering, uh, is there a plan B that we can be open to? And maybe we could return to that, or you can tackle that one now, or we can get to it as our conversation moves on. Well, look, if we could all <clears throat> pull together because we're being attacked by a pandemic and <clears throat> close down the economy and start from zero and rebuild, um, then we could do that because of climate change also. Climate change is a far greater threat than a pandemic. In fact, a pandemic is just one of the threats of climate change. Um, I sometimes wonder why we have failed to get that message across, that we really have to do drastic things. But when I look at the whole history of salmon, and you know, going back to ancient times, and there were a lot of talks about uh, um, Blocking rivers. Blocking rivers is one of the huge issues. And even in the Middle Ages, there were ordinances against blocking rivers. And the Magna Carta specifies that the King of England cannot block a salmon river. Hmm. Um, and 
the 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 problem of overnetting and 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 damming were were huge problems. But in the nineteenth century, uh, along came the industrial revolution, and I mean, if you look at Britain, I mean, they 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 built all of these uh, mills which they powered by dams that blocked rivers. And then the mills uh, dumped their pollution into the rivers. And soon uh, the rivers of Britain were completely dead. And then in New England, uh, people, uh, many of British origin, did the exact same thing. And then, you know, it was largely New Englanders who went out west and got this great idea of how to build this Pacific Northwest by blocking the rivers and having hydroelectric dams and producing more energy than anybody else had to build this economic powerhouse. So <clears throat> I was researching all of this and I was thinking, why isn't anybody learning anything? And then I realized, because they're not trying to learn anything. Uh, they regarded these things that they did as tremendous successes. They did make Britain the greatest industrial power in the world. They did make New England the greatest industrial force in North America. And they did take the Pacific Northwest, which had very little economic activity, and build a huge economy based on uh, uh, electricity from hydroelectric dams. These are great successes um, that are destroying the planet. And so What's really happening here is that we need to rethink our whole idea of economic development. To develop an economy does not necessarily mean that you have to destroy the earth. Uh, you have to look for ways of developing that are not destructive. Um, and we need to do that fairly quickly. I mean, the, 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 uh, Europeans who came to America and, and looked at the uh, Native Americans whose lives depended on salmon uh, wondered why their salmon stocks weren't getting depleted like the, the white people's were. And they came up with a couple of ideas that um, they didn't have enough fishing skills to overfish and that they uh, only used this for, you know, sustainability for food. They didn't use it for commerce. And this was completely wrong. They had economies. They, they had built villages. They traded between them. Salmon was an important uh, commodity of trade. And they were brilliant salmon fishermen. If you read the journals of Lewis and Clark and Mackenzie and any of the early explorers, you know, if they, if they wanted salmon, they had to find an Indian because the Indians were the ones who knew how to catch them. So it was such a flourishing salmon industry. Why, um, why didn't they destroy the, the salmon stocks like we did? Because the founding principle of developing their economy was that you can't destroy the habitat. You have to maintain the river. You have to treat the river respectfully. You have to treat the salmon respectfully. And I submit that we need to change our thinking. I know you make that. Well, I want to return to that in a minute because I actually have a question about that coming up down the list here. But first, I want to lay a little more groundwork for people um, and touch on something you already touched on. Where you, you, I want to connect two thoughts of yours. One about that the survival of salmon is absolutely tied to the survival of the planet. And also 
can you touch more on anadromy? Like explain to people what that means, why that makes the fish special, and why it makes them all that much more vulnerable. And, and you talk too in your book about the cost that anadromy uh, entails, like why it's a risky life strategy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I say in the book that the purpose of the book was not to say, you know, that this is an incredible animal and it'd be really sad if we lost it. However, it is an incredible animal and it would be really sad if we lost it. I think salmon is one of the most remarkable animals in the animal kingdom. Um, a fish that can jump 11 feet in the air. I mean, think about that. That would be like a human being jumping 50 feet. It can accelerate as fast as an automobile. Um, they they born in rivers and they get to the size of herring and they go out to sea and they eat so much, they hunt so much that they increase their size by about 95%. They're thousands of miles away now. And at a certain point, um, it's like a bell goes off, time to spawn, time to reproduce the species. And they find the river in which they were born, which is now thousands of miles away. And not only that, but in that river, they find the exact spot in the river where they were born. And Hey, Mark, I want to just interject. Can you speak just a little sidebar about how, like all the different ideas of how they think that salmon are able to do that? Yeah, uh, they're not absolutely certain how they find the river. Um, there is a lot of theories. And they're pretty sure that once they get in the river, they find the right spot through smell. And they can identify that it's the right river by the smell. But they can't smell the river from thousands of miles at sea. So how do they get there? Um, some theorize that they use uh, uh, stellar or solar navigation. Some think that they, uh, they're able to uh, lock into electric, electromagnetic fields. They seem to have some uh, magnetic materials along the, the, the stripe in the center of their body, the lateral stripe there. and. Uh, it's not completely certain. They're, they're, they're still trying to figure it out. Um, but it's, uh, it's an ability that all salmon have. And occasionally, a salmon won't go back to the river of its birth. It'll spawn somewhere else. And this is a good thing because it, they find new rivers. And uh, they develop new rivers. Yeah, at the moment, they're developing some rivers on the north slope of Alaska that have, uh, are no, no longer iced over because of climate change. Um, the, one of the remarkable features of salmon is that they completely adapt to the river they come from so that um, their DNA is completely focused on that particular river which is why hatcheries, if they try to do eggs from a different river, it won't do well in that river because it's a, it's a specific subspecies. Um, and if you look at two salmon of the same species in two different rivers, they would look the same, but the DNA is actually more different than yours and mine. Um, and when it 
becomes, it's not clear to me at what point this is or how this is decided, but when the DNA becomes too much different, then they're a different species. So there's like seven species in the Pacific, and which is one genus, and there's uh, only one species in the Atlantic, which is a separate genus. Um, but uh, river to river, they're all they're all different, and they have different skills. You know, if you're from a river that has uh, big waterfalls, you're a great jumper. Or you know, if, if you're stronger, if you have uh, faster currents. I mean, I, I've seen I've seen salmon making their way in in rivers that are so where the current is so strong that they're really just gaining a centimeter at a time. Um, but they're unstoppable. They never give up. I've seen them jump waterfalls and not make it over the top, fall down on the rocks and kind of shake it off and jump up again and keep trying till they get it. Um, incredible determination. And once they enter the river, they stop eating. And this is nature solving a problem because you know, a salmon eats so much at sea that if it goes back in a river and continues eating like that, the, the, the river will be destroyed. They'll eat out the whole river. They'll eat out the baby salmon. They'll eat out everything there is to eat. And so instead, they just stop eating when they arrive in the river, which raises all kinds of interesting questions for people who fly fish for salmon in rivers. Why do they take the fly? The whole other subject of debate is they're not eating. Um which is why uh, salmon flies don't look like food. <laughs> uh, you know, like you, if you're fishing for a trout, you use a fly that looks like something that they eat. But you can do all sorts of weird, crazy things for salmon flies because they're not looking for food. Um, they uh, completely change their bodies. They uh, change from a silver skin. They develop a, sp a spawning look, the males, uh, they become bright red and get humps on their backs and hook noses and all sorts of weird things become this very strange looking animal. Um, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy to do that. I mean, the, 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 the red in the skin is the pigment from the flesh. When salmon, after salmon have spawned, uh, they're like an albino. There's no pigment in them. The flesh is white. Um, so they, they, use everything they've got to get there and their last energy is spawning and then they've done what they had to do and they roll over and die <laughs> it's it's like the story was written by a greek tragedian <laughs> <laughs> um you know what are the when I talk about how salmon are all are uh all created equal you make this interesting point where you know, looking at them, if you're just like a passive observer, a casual observer, you look at salmon from two different river systems and, and think like, oh, you know, it's a sockeye or it's a king. What the hell's the difference? But you point out how Bristol Bay, I think you're talking about fairly recent market trends where you're talking about commercial fishermen in Bristol Bay. They'll sell their sockeye salmon for about a dollar a pound and they'll sell their king salmon for about 50 cents a pound. Copper River, the sockeyes, so same species of fish, but a sockeye that's going to head up the Copper River might go for $2.50 a pound as opposed to a dollar a pound in Bristol Bay. And the a king salmon headed up the Copper 
might fetch around two fifty a pound as opposed to fifty cents a pound in Bristol Bay. And you point out that at those rates, it's plausible to catch a king salmon that is worth to that fisherman about two hundred bucks. How do you begin to explain like like how do you explain those price discrepancies? Um yeah, you know, and also the <laughs> another question is how do you explain the discrepancy between what the fisherman is being paid and what you're paying, what they're paying at the Pike Market in that, Seattle. Yeah, or, that's know. definitely another. Uh, uh, that's that's true of a lot of, of a lot of fish. You right. know, you, when you hear what they're getting for it and what right. what people are paying for it in restaurants, you realize that someone's making a hell of a lot of money yeah. somewhere. Right, but the the reason why I chose these two particular fisheries to go out on, uh, I mean, I can't help myself. I just had any excuse to go out in a commercial fishery, I go, but. Uh, the one that I did in Bristol Bay um, was a, uh, you know, there were set netters. There were gill netters in both cases, but the set netters is a very low investment kind of fishery. And they go out in these aluminum skiffs and they they haul in the fish. They, they, they don't take good care of them. The guy I went with, uh, Ollie Olson, uh, he was a Montana sheep shearer. Uh, I don't know. You've probably seen these guys at work. It's a, yeah. it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough job in itself. And he discovered that in the off season there was money to be made in Bristol Bay, so he gets a bunch of young guys from around Montana to go up with him, and these guys have never been on a boat before, and they're they're lost. They they don't know what a bow is, what a stern is. Um, they call a line a rope. Um, but they earn a few thousand dollars, which, you know, they earn enough money for a down payment and a simple home in Montana, which they could never do with what they were doing in Montana. But they, they go out and you go out for like 15 hours. Uh, I mean, the, the, the regulators will say, you know, there's an opening and it's 15 hours or it's 20 hours, whatever it is, you fish the whole time. Um, and it's Alaska in the summertime, so there's no nighttime. And, you know, they're yanking these things out of the nets and throwing them on the deck, and they're stepping on them and kicking them and stuff and take them over to the tender and throw them into these canvas bags, and they take them away. Completely different from the fishery that I went to, the drift net fishery I went to in Cordova, uh, uh, Alaska, which is the Copper River salmon which they catch out in open ocean in the Gulf of Alaska. Um, when the regulators have uh, found that enough salmon have made it into the Copper River to spawn, you know, they'll get an opener for 15 hours or something. Um, but these are like real, um, well, they're small ships, you know, they're, they're one person uh, operations, about 30 feet, uh, spool and and uh, spool on the front, and um, they uh, uh, fish these things with great care. They take them out of the net, and they bleed them from the gills as they take them out, and they slide them into an ice hold. Uh, nowadays, some are using uh, holds with uh, slush instead of ice because it surrounds it better, and they take really good care of it, and that's the difference in price. And there's also an issue that you spoke about, about the condition of the fish that's entering the river. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, 
<clears throat> as I said, the fish in different rivers are different. And a river like the Copper River, which is a big, tough, long river, uh, it has big, tough fish. Um, the more the fish has to go through to get to the spawning ground, the higher quality of uh, fish it is. A lot of the Bristol Bay rivers are, are fairly small rivers and uh, uh, don't have to go through a lot once they get into Bristol Bay to get up to their spawning grounds. And so they're not, uh, uh, they're not as big or as strong or as fat. And uh, uh, I mean, there's a there's different quality of uh, fish in, in, in different rivers. Did you, Mark, did you taste test those two fish? Could you tell? You don't have to tell. I did, but you don't, you could look at them and tell, and you really did. Um, but just like the amount of fat coming off them. Yeah, just the you know the whole way that they look. You know, the, the I mean, Copper River salmon are beautiful. Um, also, you know, I have to say, in fairness, that the, the Copper River people are brilliant marketers. Um, and you know, I remember I. I got nowhere on this, but I, uh, I have roots in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and I was trying to convince Gloucester fishermen to go out to Cordoba and just check out how the Copper River fishery is done, how they market their fish. Yeah, you know, they've managed to create in people's heads the idea that that's a species of fish. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it has a little to do with the fact that it's the first run in Alaska, so it opens the season. But it, it's also, and it also has to do with the fact that they guarantee the quality that is fished really carefully. Um, but it's also just plain old marketing. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of American readers, you know, when, when they're going to tuck into a book about salmon, I think they're expecting um, to see a bunch of stuff about Alaska, right? Uh, yeah. But to, you also spend time discussing salmon fisheries and the history of salmon in Japan, the history of salmon in Europe. Uh, can you give a snapshot of, of, of salmon as a global resource? Like, like who has them, who don't? Yeah, it's a, it's a northern fish, and they're also in the southern hemisphere, but they're not supposed to be. <laughs> they're fake. They, they, they were planted in places like New Zealand and Australia and Chile. Um, not there by nature. By nature, they're a northern hem. They're uniquely all salmonids are uniquely uh, northern hemisphere. Um, a salmon cannot live in water that is over sixty-eight degrees. It can't live in it. It can't reproduce in it. So that dictates uh, going, you know, rivers that are fairly far north. Um, and also, it's one of the problems about climate change. Um, the uh, Pacific uh, salmon are um, from California to Alaska and uh, uh, in northern Japan, Hokkaido, and uh, in Pacific Russia, the Kamchatka, the Kamchatka Peninsula. The Kamchatka Peninsula and Alaska are the two healthiest salmon runs in the world. And the reason for that, what do these two places have in common? There are hardly any people, uh, short growing seasons, so there's almost no agriculture. Mm. Um, 
so the, those rivers are just undisturbed and wild. Um, That's interesting. Is it, you know, the thing we've talked about, or an, an observation I've had about wildlife conservation, um, that at a if you go back in American history a bit, you see that we had wilderness and and wild things sort of in spite of our best efforts to get rid of it. Like we just, it took us a while to conquer it all, right? Like we sort of had the appetite and intention to go get it all. We just hadn't gotten around to it. And eventually we got around to it. And now we have oftentimes the wild things that we have and the wildlife that we have is now because we've made a very conscious decision to have it. Yeah, and we I mean, understand that it's costly to have it, but we insist on having it, and we make sacrifices to have it. Is Russia? You hear about the salmon and, and the brown bears and in in Russia and Siberia. Are they still in the phase of they just have it because they haven't gotten around to killing it off yet, or are they sacrificing yeah. for it? No, the um, and there is serious commercial fishing. Uh, going on in the Kamchatka and other parts of uh, Russia. And also the area is very rich in oil. And so far they've uh, stayed away from the Kamchatka, but there are some areas near there that were very good salmon places, but have been damaged by oil and mineral ex- exploration. Um, the um, Yeah, it's just, a, it, it's, it's a remote, uh, you know, it's like, why don't we all move to Alaska? I don't know. We don't. That's what saves Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> I think they like it that way. What? Right. How, how are the runs in Japan? Are there good salmon runs in Japan? There are there are some good in the in in the north, mainly in Hokkaido, uh, which is the northernmost island. Like uh, you can walk out and stand on the bank and look out, and there's a bunch of salmon spawning. There in the in the. In the uh, uh, in cities, you can see the salmon spawning in rivers. They're, uh, uh, and they have a unique species called masu, or sometimes in English called cherry salmon, because it, it runs around the time of cherry blossom season. Oh, what's it most, what, what's, what's it most closely related to of our Pacific salmon? Oh, I don't know. It, it's, um, Maybe like a sockeye or something. I don't know. It's a it's a very um, it's a very good eating salmon, um, and um, uh, kind of a unique species. It shows up a little bit in other places in Asia, a little bit in the Kamchatka, and a little bit in Korea, but it's mainly a, a, a Japanese species. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of problems in the Japanese salmon fishery, like something like 95% of the wild salmon in Japan have some uh, hatchery DNA in them. Oh, not, really? Oh. That's not good. Yeah. When you were when you were mapping your book out and and, ta- and trying to think of what areas to write about and what salmon to pay attention to, I'm I'm asking this as just a person that grew up as a kid in the Great Lakes. Did you have what were your considerations around talking about your reluctancies or, or ambitions to talk about the make believe salmon? Like, the, you know, we have 
several species of salmon in the Great Lakes that were moved there. Do you do you feel that it's it's irrelevant to the conversation? Does it inform? I, I, I do. I do feel that it's ir- ir- irrelevant. It, it doesn't. Uh, um, it doesn't uh, speak to uh, uh, the preservation of wild runs. It's like it's like farm salmon. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things you can say pro and con about farm salmon, but one thing that's clear is it has nothing to do with whether salmon, wild salmon, will survive. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I got uh, you. It's a completely different thing. Um, well, except that it does have something to do with wild salmon surviving because it could possibly make them not survive correct the farm Far, the, the farm yeah yeah okay we're getting into that now or later <laughs> no, we, well, let's wait a second <laughs> let's wait let's wait because I, I what i didn't talk i about do have it, that question here spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. Or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save terms and conditions apply i want to tell you about an american-made success story and black buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches black buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use black buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for black buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. In answer to your original question about places, um, I, I didn't get around to talking about Atlantic salmon. Um, which is uh, New England and Maritime Canada and uh, Newfoundland and uh, Iceland and uh, Britain and Ireland and Norway and part of Russia. Used to be a lot more, you know, used to be Poland and France and Spain. That's what I couldn't believe that Spain used to have salmon. Yeah, northern, northern, uh, northern Spain. Um, Galicia, um, yeah, and, uh, Franco, um, who I absolutely loathe because I'm showing my age, but I actually covered Franco as a reporter, and he was a monster. <clears throat> He's a dedicated fly fisherman. <laughs> oh, he was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, this is, I had no idea. This is a good way of disproving the claim, you know, that fly fishermen Bunch are all softies. Good, good, good people. <laughs> yeah. really, really good people, fly fishermen. Franco was a fly fisherman. And, <laughs> you know, he, the way he ran Spain, he could do whatever he wanted. And so he, uh, he tried to preserve uh, northern uh, rivers, which is where the salmon were. Because he wanted to fish in them. <laughs> um, well, that, that, to be honest, that's a lot of um, th- that's a strong conservation incentive for a lot of people. Yes, and I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't, disc- yeah. I don't discount it. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it um, you know, it is uh, it, it's what's made a lot of fishermen and hunters um, environmentalists, which good that works. Yeah, I'll um, take it. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, the thing that struck me with Atlantic salmon, a few things struck me. First of all, Atlantic salmon, if you've never fished for it, is is really something else, something spectacular. It, it's, um, it, it's just this furious wild animal on your line there, leaping and charging from one side of the river to the other and, and, and just uh, an unbelievable fish. Um, and so, you know, sports fishing for wild salmon has always been extremely popular and, and really at the roots of fly fishing. Um, but uh, New England has almost no salmon. You know, I was, I was born and raised in Hartford by the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River used to be one of the great salmon rivers of North America. And nobody mentioned that when I was growing up. I had no idea. Salmon was never talked about. Salmon was never eaten. You know, in New England, 
Now you get it. But, you know, it used to be if you went into a fish market in New England or a famous seafood restaurant or something, there was no salmon um, because salmon wasn't a local fish. But salmon was a local fish in the 18th and 17th century. Um, and the only place where it's left now is in Maine. Um, they're trying to bring back the Penobscot River. Um, they tried to bring back the Connecticut River and failed. And um, what's been happening in New England, which I have also found in, in Ireland and Scotland and Norway and all the Atlantic salmon places, there's almost no commercial fishing anymore. Um, and yet the stock keeps declining. And they tell me they're all going to sea and just not many are coming back and fewer and fewer returns every year. And the reason for this is climate change. The reason is carbon dioxide, which it turns out loves water. So about a third of the carbon dioxide that's produced on land ends up in the ocean. And it impacts on the hydrogen content of the ocean. And that impacts on the ability of certain small animals to grow, like zooplankton, and uh, capelin, little fish that uh, salmon and cod feed on. And um, so they're smaller. So there's less to eat. So the Atlantic Ocean uh, is having less and less carrying capacity. It's losing its ability to feed the animals that live in the ocean. That is the scariest thing I've ever learned. I mean, my God, if, if, if the ocean can no longer provide enough food for fish, we're sunk. Uh, and that's climate change. When you, can you sketch for people a little bit? Well, let me approach this a different way. If you're doing a book about the demise of something, you, you have an obligation to show where it began and, and how things looked when it began because you can't understand yeah, like any movie about the fall of someone uh, needs to show someone at their height or else the whole there's no, no sense of a fall. This whole story <laughs> is kind of pointless. Right. Um, and I, I think that like when you get into something like, uh, you know, like Buffalo, there's all these stories that, that we're so familiar with of herds that took days to pass and, you know. Yeah, uh, clouds of them that look like shadows from clouds moving across the landscape and on and on and on. What are, how, how good was it with salmon? I mean, you could, you could just pick a spot that you happen to take a shine to during your research, but is there a way to show people like how good it was somewhere? Well, yeah. in a lot of places, I mean, in, in uh, the Columbia river, in uh, Northern California, in New England, um, in all over Europe. I mean, all over Europe, the Rhine River. Um, you know, salmon were so prevalent that you just saw them. You know, people in Paris in the 16th century could see salmon leaping in the Seine. Um, uh, that's how they got their name, is Roman soldiers marching through France. Uh, would see these fish that were always leaping out of the water. And uh, that's what uh, salmo means, is, is leaper. Huh. Um, so they were, they were just, they, they were a common sight 
in in rivers. To what to what extent did indigenous peoples rely on on salmon in in, in North America? Like, like uh, who, who were it, the salmon cultures? Well, the the, the cultures of uh, of New England and Maritime Canada, and uh, you know Alaska and British Columbia, uh, Idaho and uh, Washington and um, Oregon and Northern California. These were all cultures that uh, were centered on salmon. Um, and you, you, you can still see what that means if you visit indigenous people in Alaska in the summertime when they're at their summer camp uh, putting up uh, their food supply for the rest of the year. You know, smoking, catching salmon and smoking it, uh, having a supply for the year. I mean, to a Native American, uh, I'm not sure what seems dumber. The idea of fly fishing in general, which they don't think much of, or uh, worse than that, catch and release. Yeah, you know, now I'm not knocking catch and release. I think it's a good idea, but to a, to to a Native American, you know, if you're going to release it, why catch it? <laughs> oh, it's a it's a it's a good argument. Yeah, right. Why 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 mess with it? Right. Why te- pur- why taunt the, the, it? <laughs> the purpose of fishing is to catch a fish. You know? <laughs> Uh, I mean that's that's the odd thing about fly fishing. Yeah. The purpose of, of, of fly fishing is to make it as impossible as you can to catch a fish, so that you can feel really good about it when you get it. <laughs> you know? Can you talk about the first caught sa- <laughs> the, the 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 first caught salmon ceremonies, like what what that is? Yeah, yeah and it's an interesting thing that almost uh, practically every salmon culture. I mean, in 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 Pacific Russia and the original indigenous people in Japan and all the indigenous North Americans, uh, all these people had a ceremony for the first salmon of the season that was caught. Um, And the idea of this uh, ceremony was to thank them for coming back. Um, Because in in their culture, uh, you know, in our modern scientific culture, you know, the fish are born in the river and they get to a bigger size and they go out to the ocean and then they come back to spawn. But in, in, their, uh, in their culture, the salmon come in. Why do they come in? They come in so that we can have a few to eat. And then they go back out again. And then next year, they come in again. And we have to thank them for that. Um, now, in fact, we know that it's actually not the same salmon coming in, that it, they're different generations. But that was the original way of looking at it. And you had to thank them for coming back. If you don't thank them for coming back, next year they won't come. Can you uh, explain what a stock is of salmon? Like In your book, you say that 23% of salmon stocks are headed toward extinction. You don't mean, you don't mean 23% of the salmon species. Like, what is no, a stock? It's a subspecies. Uh, as I was saying before, there's the salmon are slightly different in every river. So that's a you know, like Copper River is a stock. They're sockeye or kings, but they're they're a stock. Okay. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, this is true of other fish too, but with, with salmon, it's uh, identified usually by river. How many stocks have we lost so far? Uh, 
I mean, can you even say? No, I, I, I can't, except in, uh, and it depends where you're talking about. I mean, in, in the Pacific Northwest, we've, we've lost uh, over half. Yeah. Uh, in, in New England, in, in New England, we've lost most. But, but it globally, was it fair to say that have we globally lost hundreds of stocks of salmon? Probably. But um, look, some good news. Some of it's coming back <laughs> um, as rivers are getting cleaned up. Uh, uh, salmon has come back into a lot of rivers, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, it's, uh, they've spotted it in the Thames. Um, and, uh, a lot of British rivers that were thought of as dead or almost dead have come back. Uh, rivers in France are coming back. Um, you know, but part of the problem is what scientists call shifting baselines. So you have a, you have a stock and it's in real, it's 1970. And it's in really bad shape, and you sound the alarm, and you struggle for years and years, and you get the river cleaned up. Maybe you take down some dams, you get the river working again, and now you have like maybe a quarter as many fish as you had before all of this trouble started, and it's pronounced a success. But it's really not a success, you know. I mean, what we really need to do is to get back to uh, centuries ago. And so the problem is that our goal needs to be things that we no longer remember, things that we only know from stories and myths uh, that no one's ever seen. You, uh, you describe yourself as an environmental writer. Have you always looked at, have you always regarded yourself as an environmental writer? Or is that a, a new way of describing yourself? Uh, well, I do a lot of things. But I have always, from time to time, uh, done environmental writing, uh, starting when I was a newspaper record, reporter and I covered nuclear energy issues, uh, opposition to nuclear energy. And um, I, I've, I've always uh, uh, covered environmental issues from, from time to time. Somebody, <laughs> an interview once, and, and, and somebody said, uh, uh, so, uh, you think that the, uh, the, the, the environment is really, uh, um, it's, it's, it's something that you really like, huh? And <laughs> I said, well, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, I, you know, I like air. You know? <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you more about, um, sort of what your obligations if you're an environmental writer, I was going to ask you about your obligations, but you just brought up something that I want to distract ourselves with for a second. Uh, you used to write in opposition to nuclear power. It's to me, it's becoming, um, to me, it's again, becoming increasingly seductive. Uh huh. But you know, here's, here's the thing. Oh God, I'm talking like Joe Biden. So he always says, "Here's the thing." <laughs> no, well, then you'll have to you'll have to uh, say something that doesn't make any sense after right. that. <laughs> well, that's coming next. That's coming next. <laughs> um, the 
the hydroelectric industry, dams, their whole argument is, well, this is better than fossil fuel or nuclear energy. And I think that's a, a false argument. Um, dams are destroying rivers. Uh, destroying rivers is going to unravel the natural order and unravel the planet. So it's, it's not an option either. So why do we pretend, you know, that you can't produce energy without being destructive? I mean, there are alternative energies, and they're becoming um, bigger and bigger, more successful, I, I think. Have you ever I, seen, a, you ever been, visited a big wind farm? You think that, I mean, come on, it's horrible. Oh, you mean that they're not a nice thing? No. No, they're horrible. They're horrible for wild. They're horrible for wildlife. Yeah, it's a massive development. I think you'd have to cover all of England with solar to power England, or seventy percent of the landscape, or some staggering statistic. I can't remember what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, you you do a a combination of of these things, and you know, the lesson there with wind power is that you try not to do, um large installations um that's good you, you keep the you keep the scale down yeah i don't I, we'll have to have you on again today because I, I want someone to convince me that or i kind of want someone to convince me that nuclear doesn't need to be revisited but it's it's like i said it's okay to listen, me it's, this, it's increasingly seductive listen this is this is my my whole attitude about um environmentalism is that i i think that environmentalists spend too much time talking about stopping things uh-huh. instead of fixing things. That yeah, uh, um, that's a good point. They get know, a they get a reputation. So there are some real problems with nuclear energy. If you want to have nuclear energy, you have to solve those problems. It's just like same thing with fish farming. I I, I don't say. That there should not be farmed fish. I did say that at one point, actually, in my cod book. But I, I changed my mind on that. Uh-huh. I've spent a lot of time talking to fish farmers. I do believe that they are sincerely interested in finding solutions to these problems. And you have to fix it because it's a worthwhile contribution if you fix it. Um, I sometimes wonder, you know, the, the, the pebble mine. You know about the pebble mine? I got a whole question coming up about that. I just had a conversation about that with the last two days with surprising individuals. But, yes, well aware of pebble mine. Okay, so I've been opposing the pebble mine for years. But, you know, it, it occurs to me that we may have the wrong approach here. Maybe we shouldn't say, you can't have this mine. Maybe we should say, if you're going to have this mine, you have to do it in a way that you don't put Bristol Bay at risk. You have to fix your way of doing things. Well, uh, they would just come and tell yeah. you that they already have and that there is no risk. Well, you know, that that's now you're talking about the problem of reality. Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But um yeah, and all the things that happen when you try to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People who don't want to be reasonable and it uh um Fish farmers actually do want to be reasonable, but I, I think it's always I think it's always worth a try. I think um, the guy I dedicate this book to, Ori Fignusen, is an Icelander uh, who came from a commercial fishing family and uh, was a brilliant fundraiser. And he went around 
the world raising money for fun. And then he would go to commercial salmon fishermen. And he didn't say, you know, you're doing something terrible. You're destroying things. You got to stop. He said, how are you fishing? What are you, let me see your nets. Let me, and he took a real interest in what they were doing because he was interested in commercial fishing. It was his background. And, and then he would talk to them. And then at some point he'd say, okay, how much money do you want to stop fishing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it mostly worked. A few, there were a few people who already never talked out of fishing, but it, it, it mostly worked. And, and this guy, I, I love this man. And he, he was, to me, he was a model. Or he, he died while I was working on the book. Uh, he was a model of what an environmentalist should be. I would like to take, you know, young environmentalists and introduce them to Ori and have them talk to them about, you know, how you get things done. Because you don't always get things done by antagonizing everybody. And, you know, uh, CEO of Marine Harvest in Scotland, one of the big fishing far fish farming outfits, said to me, you know, I talk to environmentalists and I hear them out. And I know he did because I know, I know a number of environmentalists that he's talked to. But he said, you know, if I talk to somebody and they say fish farming has to be stopped, then I don't have anything to say to them. And, you know, that's the problem. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real dialogue stopper. You're evil. You have to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, where does the dialogue go from there? The, the reason earlier before I got off on asking you about nuclear energy, uh, I was asking about self-identifying. By, by, by the way, for the record, I did not necessarily oppose nuclear energy. I wrote about people who oppose nuclear energy. Oh, okay. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important <laughs> distinction. Um, the reason I brought up being an environmental writer is I, if there's a, I don't mean this, I'm not directing this at you, but if someone identifies first and foremost as an environmental writer, and then they write about a subject, like let's say, I don't know, they're writing about wild horses or they're writing about predators or they're writing about salmon. Um, I'll often wonder, is their subject, is the subject they've chosen to focus in on, is it a, is it a sort of proxy for something else that they're getting at? Or is the interest really on the thing they're focused on? Because I'll often find some writers will, no matter what subject they're taking, I know where they'll fall on it, and I know what parts of it they'll accentuate, because I know that they're not actually talking about the thing they're talking about. They're talking I, about the other thing, and they're using the thing as a tool to raise a broader point. I, I usually do that. I'm almost never talking about the thing I seem to be talking about. And you're open about it. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote a book about uh, baseball in the Dominican Republic and uh, called The Eastern Stars. And it really wasn't about baseball at all. It was about the U.S. relationship with the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that when you're, if you, if you care, if you're a writer, like you have a certain amount of power as a writer, especially when you have an audience and you have an audience. Um, and, you're a purpose-driven writer, right? You want to like like you want to affect change. You would like to affect change. Do you feel that you need to be? Um, do you ever feel a pull about being hyperbolic in when you're sounding the alarm? 
because of overselling a problem because it's more likely to create and to drive an impetus for change or does part of you feel that man i need to be absolutely frank and truthful because i have to deliver truth yes or are you trying to drive action and if you need to fudge truth to drive action that's okay no i'm not into fudging truth i i think that uh you know if you do that you know you can rally a lot of people but you know at a certain point they're going to say wait a minute this guy's utter nonsense i can't yeah. believe anything he says um i i i to the best i can i try i try to be truthful and i and i try to be reasonable and this book um probably more than any other book is is making some fairly bold statements and to be honest it's because i am absolutely panicked about what climate change is doing uh it, it it's uh the impact it's going to have what it's going to do to our lives and to our children's lives is is just so huge um and you know we're confronted with people who are not facing up to that and so you know sometimes you just have to scream yeah you say i think that like you acknowledge some things i i guess you don't do what i was asking if you ever feel necessary to do because you acknowledge some things where you talk about how you cite these years in the in the past decade where there were record runs of sockeyes like these phenomenal sockeye mm -hmm. runs and that those phenomenal sockeye runs coincided with the hottest years we had on record and i think other people might look and say well how could salmon in alaska suffer from warming temperatures if we used to have these massive salmon runs in california the sunshine state um I, I think that people can look at all this and probably talk themselves out of there seeming to be a problem we're having like king salmon runs go down but we're having these record pink salmon runs in, in some areas like like how well, can you know if, if, how, if can you it, how can it all how does it fit together in a way where people can't look at it and think that Ah, we're okay after all, you know. If you, if you talk to scientists, I mean, real scientists, which I love to do, and politicians and government people hate to do, uh, the thing about real scientists is that they give you no absolutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, try talking to some epidemiologists about the coronavirus, for example. You know, the, there's uh, things we know, there's things we don't know. This... You know, I mean, the, the, the most common answer you ever get from a scientist is maybe, you know. Yeah, it drives so, me crazy. <laughs> yeah. My brothers yeah, my brothers are both scientists, and I'll often ask them, like, about their research. I'll ask them, what do you hope happens? Yeah, and you and want them take to that, lay they, it out there, right? You want them to lay it out there, yes They take no. that as an insulting <laughs> question. What do you mean, what right. do I hope happens? <laughs> right. Right. So it's... it's uh, it's it's very uh, it's it, it's very complicated uh, and um, you know one thing I can tell you though about you know warm years and good Alaskan salmon runs is last year there was a great Alaskan salmon run and it was about the warmest year on record that Alaska ever had and you know what a lot of those salmon died mm. yeah so there was a good return but a lot of fatality right.
Yeah. Fatality before spawning? Yeah. Mm. If, if, the, if the water temperature goes above 68 degrees, they will not spawn. They can't spawn. They can't live. Which of the salmon species seems to be the most dire? You mean in the most difficulty? Yeah, like like is it can't like are kings kind of the most screwed right now in the Pacific? Not not counting. Well, I was I was going to say the Atlantic Atlantic salmon. Yeah. Atlantic salmon uh, there's uh, about a million and a half Atlantic salmon left in the world. How can that be true, man? And and, and you know when you think about 60, 60 million uh, running into Bristol Bay every June, July. Uh, one and a half million total Atlantic salmon. Uh, it's yeah. There's uh, more people. There's more people in the Puget. You know, there's more people around Puget Sound than there are Atlantic salmon left in the world. There are more farm salmon in a good farm sa- uh, salmon farming operation than there are wild salmon in the in in the world. Atlantic. Oh man. Oh, it's depressing. <laughs> That part. So, of it. so, so they're they're the ones that are really in the in in the deepest trouble. Uh, as for other ones, it depends where you're talking about. But by and large, king are not doing well. You know, Chinook. Um, is it is it well understood? Um, you know, I know there's probably like there's like as you mentioned earlier, there's a litany of factors. But is it well understood? Where where if someone was going to say yeah yeah there's a dozen things, but here's the real killer on king salmon like here's the real problem with king salmon or kind of the main problem like like what is it? Well, it depends where you're talking about. I mean, in the Columbia River, it's dams. Um, you know, the Columbia River system used to be a great uh, um, king. Habitat, yeah, and, uh, and most of it is is blocked now, and in uh, Northern California also. I've actually got a question about that, Mark. Um, I grew up on the banks of the Columbia in Vancouver. This, this is Phil, the engineer, ladies Hi. and gentlemen. He's Hello. been quiet so far. <laughs> the, the engineer is acting up. I better pay attention. He's been diligently. He's been diligently engineering till now. He's been saving, right. saving it up. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up on the Columbia River, and we took multiple field trips growing up to Bonneville Dam. Um, I didn't learn anything about hydroelectric power, but one thing they were always super excited to show us was the fish ladders. And they've got big windows. You can look through at the ladders, and they, they were always trying to convince us, like, everything's fine. Look at all these, uh, these salmon are, are, are doing great. So I, fish ladders, what's the deal? I'm guessing they're not very effective based on what you're uh, saying here. Well... Um, you know, some fish ladders are, are better than others. Um, <clears throat> some don't work at all and some work pretty well. It also depends on the dam. Um, uh, I mean, getting over the, the Bonneville, is, is that the one you said you were on? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's pretty tough getting over that one. Okay. Uh, these, <clears throat> uh, these gravity dams, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, which are, you know, these are the largest hunks of concrete in the world. Hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty tough getting over them. They, some of them work to a certain degree. Uh, some of them are getting better. Some of them don't have them. So a lot of dams don't have any ladders at all. Um, and then, you know, nature has a kind of a nasty way of adopting to our inventions. So uh, most fish ladders 
uh, you'll find lots of marine mammals hanging out there because <laughs> that's a good place to get fish to eat. Uh, and they're just, uh, you know, they're just being set up for the slaughter there. Yeah. It surprised me in your, in, in your book. It surprised me how you left the, how you seem to leave the door open a little bit to, to doing some control on marine mammals, lethal control on marine mammals. Yeah. You know, look, the thing is that that now that we've thoroughly screwed up the natural order, we're trying to make it work again. Yeah, for sure. We have to, we have to. And it turns out it's really complicated, you know, that everything has unintended consequences and um, uh, it's just very hard to figure these things. Um, As someone who has been, I mean, I read about it, this in my book, I know what it's like uh, to be fishing for salmon commercially and, and watch, you know, in one case it was like four seals just eat our entire net. Um, so, you know, you have to, you, you have to find a balance, but in the balance, um, you know, everybody loses a little and, and wins a little. I, I, I did some writing about, um, uh, wolves, the reintroduction of wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mainly in Idaho that I did it. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are uh, sheep ranchers. And, uh, you know, so they hate these wolves and they're, they're furious about this. But what I say to them shortly before they take away my drink and ask me to leave is, you know, they're supposed to be there. You know, if you want to raise sheep in Idaho, you have to accept the fact that there is going to be a certain amount of predation. I mean, what happened in this country, um, you see it most in the West, but it was all over the country, is that they just had this idea, let's identify the predators and kill them, and then we'll be fine. And they did this at the request of the ranchers and the farmers, and they killed everything that was a predator, and it, it completely uh, destroyed the balance of nature. Uh, in a lot of cases in the West, uh, the idea is, can't we just be the predator? <laughs> you know, So, you know, you get rid of everything that preys on, on ungulates, and then, you know, hunters can go out and they can shoot deer and elk to their heart's content. Um, but actually, you know, those herds are supposed to be controlled by wolves and bears and mountain lions. It's It's the way the thing is supposed to work. And you know, certain types of, um, you know, like willows uh, can't survive if there's if there's too many elk and then the birds that live in the willows can't survive. So, you know, nature is a very complicated thing and uh, uh, you have to do it very, uh, very carefully. I think that in some cases you can make arguments for some killing of marine mammals. Um, these arguments have to be made pretty, pretty carefully, though.
Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. I was surprised to see that you had... I haven't found where you you double down on this. But you suggest that saving salmon would involve stopping the killing of bears. And I was curious, 
are in, in coastal areas that have salmon runs, have you seen evidence of overharvest of bears somehow impacting? No. Oh. No, I, ha- I haven't. Even, even in the Kamchatka. So, so that was just like an add-on thought. Yeah, the, the Kamchatka um, statistically has the, the largest uh, brown bear population uh, per square mile of any place in the world. I mean, it's just loaded with bears. And you go out fishing, and there they all are. Uh, and, oh, no, uh, when I say over-harvest, you mentioned that we need to stop killing bears in order to save oh, salmon. Over, oh, over-harvesting the bears. Like, are humans over-harvesting bears to the detriment of salmon? Like, I don't understand that. I don't understand what what, what backs that up. Um, I say that. Yeah. Really? In the uh, prologue. In the prologue. I was just curious what that, what the, what the, you meant by that. Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the primary cause of, of, uh, the killing of bears is the destruction of their habitat. Um, oh, no, I got you. Uh, I, I don't think that bear hunting. So you mean just killing bears through dis- habitat destruction? Yeah. 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 Eliminating them. Cause then that, I mean, that, it, that trickles down, obviously. The sentence was about stopping, uh, the killing of many animals, including beavers, wolves, bears yeah well you know um these are all different cases beavers would be the most drastic i mean beavers were were slaughtered for their pelts at one time yeah we Um, almost ran out of them right right which is is not the case with bears yeah um but you 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 have to be uh extremely careful i mean I, I have to admit that I don't understand bear hunting. I don't know why anybody wants to shoot a bear. <laughs> uh, I, I could explain it to you someday. Uh, you, I, I, oh. I mean, do you, do you eat it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You like it? I do. Well, I like, depends what they've been eating. I don't like the... Um, you don't like the brown bears because they taste fishy because they've been eating salmon. I've never eaten one. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about black bears. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're 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 better because they eat berries. The ones that are eating berries are quite good. The ones on yeah. the coastal areas where they've been feeding on some, you know, dead sea lion they found for a month are a little bit touchy. So I right. uh, I, I much prefer to go find the ones up in the higher elevations. But uh, right. we, we don't need to. I don't want to spend too much time right. on that. But it's, but this this whole thing about uh, beavers and bears and and, and wolves um, was I was really talking about a historic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of those are, are huge practices now. Um, although wolves would be if you let them. <laughs> yeah, there's you have a chapter called "The Problem with Solutions." I think I think that's right. The problem with solutions. Yeah. Tell me, like, I, I I could see someone saying, um, "Well, if we can produce them in hatcheries, why don't we just make millions and millions of salmon?" And turn them loose, and who the hell cares? That's what was said originally. Where, in, where does that fall apart? In in France, when they first started doing hatcheries, that's exactly what they did. They they uh, petitioned the government. They said, "Look, we found this huge solution. You know how the salmon are all dying because of all these nets across the river and everything. Don't worry about it anymore. We can make more." Um, 
can you date that mark? Because that's what I like really it's, struck it's, me is how long we've been at this hatchery thing. I, I not off the top of my head. It's dated in the book. It, it's eighteenth uh, century. Oh, hold on. Uh, they're or, trying to or, they're, or, early nineteenth century, I think. Okay, yeah. they're trying to propagate sa- salmon in the early eighteen hundreds. Yes. Huh. Yeah. And why does it not like? Why is it not? What's wrong with that well, theory? Is it is it effective or is it not effective? And and if it's not, why is it not effective? Okay, complicated question. Um, I uh, I I kind of fought with my publisher Patagonia about this because they were much more anti hatchery than I am. Okay. Um, the the problem with hatcheries there there's several problems. I mean the 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 problem the original problem was that the fish don't live. And that was because the, the, the eggs didn't come from the river that the fish were being released in. So they weren't suited for that habitat. Uh-huh. But a bigger problem is that if you take a river like the Columbia or some of the polluted industrial rivers of England and uh, you make a bunch of hatchery fish and you release them in those rivers, uh, you will get nothing because the same things that uh, destroyed the wild fish will destroy the hatchery fish. So you have to fix the habitat before you can, before a hatchery can do any good. Um, another problem is that hatchery fish um, seem to be, and there's some room for debate about this, but they seem to be somewhat inferior fish, I mean, less survival skills. So when they um, mix with wild uh fish they're sort of dumbing down the species that's why having 95 percent of the uh japanese wild fish have some hatchery dna in it is is a cause for concern there's a lot of hatchery you know you'll often see these stories about somebody who went to some salmon some fish store a bunch of fish stores took a bunch of fish that were being sold as wild wild salmon tested their DNA and found out they weren't wild. Mm-hmm. And then everybody says, oh, well, these guys are a bunch of crooks. Not necessarily. A lot of fish that is a lot of salmon that is supposed to be wild has a lot of hatchery DNA in it because it's crossed with it with, with hatchery fish. Um, that's why they, they, they invented this new phrase, um, wild caught. So oh, they're that's not going, interesting. They're not going out on a limb. They're saying it was caught in the wild like a wild fish. We don't know what its DNA is. Yeah. Because, you know, fish, commercial fisheries can't be testing the DNA of all the fish. You mentioned habitat. What's the, like, what is it? Why is it the reluctance of people to, over these centuries now, to, to not accept that habitat is probably the main problem? Uh, because it's costly to fix. And it sometimes means changing your economic activities. I mean, if you're if the habitat is being destroyed by a dam that's providing your electricity, or it's being destroyed by a factory that's uh, you know creating wealth and jobs, um, people aren't going to want to mess with it. Um, that's getting back to my idea that uh, you just have to change your whole concept of economic development. What was the what was the heyday of dam building? Like what years? Uh, the Depression, the, the the New Deal. Yeah, you know, Roosevelt put this out as a wonderful thing, and Woody Guthrie sang a song to the uh, 
you know, the dam building on the Columbia. I mean, Woody Guthrie, the man of the people, wasn't this great? They're building dams to block the Columbia. Man, it would have seemed that he would have been a pro salmon guy. But the, the reason you would, you would think so. He probably would be today. Well, the reason I'm asking that question is I think I've always been curious about um a lot of things that happen in, in history, we now like to sit and look and think about oh they were so stupid right they were so rapacious and horrible right but it was the people that were doing these things were it was us right it was us yeah. in, it was us in earlier form when they were getting the, when they were building those dams do you know was it well understood what this would do what was someone saying you know um i'm all for it Let's let's generate tons of electricity. Let's become a dominant uh, power. We'll become a dominant military power because we can smelt aluminum and, and build an air force and on and on and on. But this means salmon are screwed. Did someone say that? Was it known? Someone said that. And, and those are the people that we call Indians. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the native tribes said that a lot. Like they looked and, and said, I just have a feeling that when you block this river off, it will mean not, that these fish can't go up there anymore. This is this is not, you know, high-tech science to realize that if you have a fish that has to run the river and you block the river, you're gonna destroy the fish right. Yeah, but what was the conversation? Well, you know. It's it's going back to what I was saying before. The, the conversation was we're developing the economy. It's the depression, and we're creating jobs. You know, and, and like tough uh, shit. It was like tough shit yeah, to the to the fish. Right, right. We're making we're 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 making New England a prosperous place. You know, we're we're uh, Britain is going to dominate the industrial revolution. Uh, but um, it was. But you feel I don't mean to came like saying the same thing, but you feel that someone that it was in the it, it it was in, it was part of the calculus. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, like when someone starts smoking, right? I don't I don't think they say like I'm going to start. I don't think they really conceptualize it. They're not like I'm going to take up smoking. I do realize that this will mean I will die younger of lung cancer, but I'm committed. Do, do you like know they're not a, doing it that way. But uh, how could people do, have do, not do, have done it that way with salmon? Do you know there's a Republican congressman in Indiana, I can't think of his name, who said that, you know, people are going to have to um, uh, uh, die from the coronavirus. And that's just, uh, you know, that's just what we have to do to get the economy moving. It doesn't surprise me that someone would say that because I think people have similar conversations about, you know, I think you could say the same thing, like people have an appetite for alcohol. Um, and people want to be able to drink alcohol, but we lose, I, I don't know what it is, 50,000 people to alcohol-related deaths every year. And we accept that because some of us, it's really important for us to have a beer at night, or it's really important for us to go out and have a glass of wine. So we will take the fact that we will have massive amounts of highway fatalities from alcohol. We will have massive amounts of domestic violence from alcohol, uh, and we will have child neglect because of alcohol and financial destitution for people because of alcohol. Because when I go home at night, I like to have a cold beer. So sure, we do that all the time. Yeah, it's I'm no different. Sure. <laughs> well, it is kind of uh, different. To explain how it's <laughs> explain to me how it's different. 
when you go home and have your beer, that's really not causing somebody to beat the wife. You know? <laughs> no, but we're, uh, we're, we're taking the thing that we know, like I have alcohol in my so you home. Have to deal with, you, have to deal with, you have to deal with alcohol and people's ability to use it in a better way. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we've pretty successfully proven that banning alcohol doesn't work. Uh, you know, and I don't know that banning travel works. Um, right. well, I, I, it works, right. but I think that well, banning cars, think how many lives we would save if we banned cars. Exactly. Exactly. But I can't get behind it. Let's go back. Let's get back to salmon at the, at the end of your book. This is my, a buddy of mine who he, a uh, guy I work with Sam Lundgren. He knew we were going to be talking and, and, he had it was a sentence you talk you use in your book cod that he wanted me to ask you about where he says that you wrote about how most fishermen cannot stop fishing like acknowledging that it's like this it's a compulsion it's like a compulsive behavior yeah it's because if you are a commercial fisherman um that is a life that you love, and there's no substitute for it. There's nothing else you can do. What does a commercial fisherman do instead of fishing? There's, 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 there's nothing else like it. Um, and, and, and it's a, it's a fisherman's entire identity. Do you think that uh, that identity, like, the- so, I mean, so much so, so much so, the fishermen, you know, have, they have trouble relating to people who, who, who don't fish. I mean, I can't tell you, you know how it has changed my whole relationship as a journalist with fisheries, the fact that they know that I've actually worked on commercial boats. They accept uh, that they'll be more likely to yeah. talk to you. Right. Right. <laughs> I was, uh, when my cod book came out, it, it, it came out at the same time as uh, Sebastian Younger's A Perfect Storm. Mm-hmm. And we did a TV show together in Rhode Island. And then we were kind of walking out to the parking lot and and he was saying to me, you know, when I was working on the book, I just couldn't get anybody to take me on their boats. Well, how'd you get people to take them on their boats? And, um, I, you know, he just is a nice guy. You know, we, he, he looked like a rich guy, had this very fancy car. <laughs> <laughs> what, can, what can I say to him? <laughs> yeah, that, I guess, that, yeah, that's true, man. Um a way that and i think we all do it where like even if you you imagine as a writer when you're talking to someone who might get your antenna might be up you know uh, you're not sure about them what their motivations are right. but then they say some little thing that reveals some intimacy with your industry some intimacy with your craft right you do uh, your guard goes down Right. But it, it's also, I mean, I, I, I think it's true that I do have an understanding and an empathy for commercial fishermen that a lot of writers don't have. I mean, I think that this, I think that overfishing is sometimes a problem, but it is, it is pounced on much more than it should be because these are marginalized blue collar workers uh, and people don't really understand them or what they're doing. And it's so easy to say, oh, you know, here's the problem, these guys. And, and you know, to call a fisherman greedy is so absurd. I mean, take a look at what they have. How greedy could they be? Yeah, that's you a know? good point. You're so greedy 
you want to just work your ass off all the time <laughs> to every right. year worry about whether or not you're going to make a living. Right. And then next thing you know, you're going to want to have a house to live in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all while you're covered in fish slime. Right. I think that people think of like hatcheries and fish farming often in the same sentence, you know, I, I imagine a lot of people don't even really understand what the difference is, but explain for people like what fish farming is and the term that people use like sea cattle or sea grazing. I can't remember what, yeah. what expression and, and, and how fish farming I impacts salmon. I said sea cattle, but I may have made that up. Oh, okay. Well, I liked it when I saw it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the difference between farming and, and, and hatcheries is that hatcheries are trying to work with the wild stocks. Uh, farming is something completely separate. Farming is a way of producing an alternative uh, product that's, uh, I mean, the, the, it, it was started in the 1970s in Norway by guys who thought they were coming up with a um, low-cost, sustainable product. Um, and the first problem with it is that it's not so sustainable if you're feeding them wild fish. So, you know, they take factory trawlers, the worst kind of fishing, they scoop up all the stuff, grind it up into meal to feed the, the salmon in the farm. Then when you eat a farm salmon, you're killing more wild fish than if you just ate a wild fish. Um, uh, fish farmers have, have been trying to deal with that. They've, they're, they're, they've lowered the percentage of fish in the food. It's down to about 50%. And there's all kinds of really kind of high-tech experiments, soldier fly, and all sorts of ways of trying to get other protein to do this differently. Um, the, the problem is that the consumer uh, tends to find that the more uh, actual fish is in the feed, the better they like the fish. Uh, so this is something they're working on that, that they've improved, but they've got a ways to go. That, that's uh, an interesting thing about fish farming. I don't know that I haven't given a lot of thought to it until recently around an issue around Manhattan, um, uh -huh. like just like bait, like fishing bait and fish feed that you think if it's farmed, it must not be killing fish. Right. But to hear about the quantities of fish it takes to feed the fish. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So they're, they're trying to uh, lower that. And then they have the problem of escapes. Um, and, you know, th that's just the problem that uh, uh, some of the farm salmon get out of the nets either by accident or sometimes they'll just hop out. I've been in fish farms where. A salmon just leaps out, and somebody says, "Ooh!" Grabs the net and throws him back in. But uh, um, almost all farm fish is Atlantic salmon. Uh -huh. So if if Atlantic salmon escape in the Atlantic, they will crossbreed with wild Atlantic salmon. This is very bad because you know in farming you eliminate um, a natural selection. You replace it with human selection. It's like cows, you know. Cows don't have anything natural about them. <laughs> Everything's been chosen by 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 farmers and, and, and biologists. You know, so they talk about don't feed the cow GMO food. The cow's GMO. It's a gen genetically modified cow. Um, and same thing with salmon. So, you know, they, they have chosen their genes. They, they have bred these salmon um, for one thing. One thing only to to grow very quickly, 
so that it just, you know, less expense raising them to market size. They have no skills. They have no, you know, they can't find the river of their birth. They have no river of their birth, but couldn't if they did. They have, you know, no, uh, none of all these extraordinary abilities that wild salmon has. They are, they are, are just a fast-growing moron, mm-hmm. you know? So now they're getting out and they're breeding. Well, so how does, how does the breeding happen if they can't find a river? Uh, well, they can find a river. It's just not the river of their birth. They'll just go up a river, and if there's a female there, you know, if it's a male and there's a female there digging a a, a red, they'll uh, d- deposit their milt on it. Or if it's a a female, will dig a red, and a, and a wild male will, uh, you know, they salmon. If they see a nest, they go for it. So they still they, do have the urge to, <laughs> to run up a river at some point. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just any river. <clears throat> and uh, uh, so this is going to dumb down wild Atlantic salmon. Now, in the Pacific, most of the farm salmon are also Atlantic, and it's a hard rule of biology that uh, different uh, genera don't crossbreed. So an Atlantic salmon and a Pacific salmon are, are two separate genera, uh, so they won't breed. So. It's not really as big a risk as pe- people get very excited when there's escapes of farm salmon in the Pacific. But um, most of the time, they just disappear because what's going to happen? They're, they're not going to crossbreed with the wild. Uh, all they can do is set up their own Atlantic uh, salmon. But since they're all dumb fish, uh, they're not going to compete with the wild uh, populations and, and they'll probably die out. But it's a huge problem in the Atlantic. Um, and then there's the problem of sea lice. Um, sea lice is a crustacean that attacks salmon. And, um, you know, the, these lice are traveling all over the ocean. They'll find a salmon or two. But then when you have this fish farm with a million uh, salmon in one cage, you know, it's it's like leaving honey out for the bears, you know. <laughs> and just all the lice will just gravitate to the farm. And they won't limit themselves to the farm, of course. If there's any wild salmon there, they'll attack them also. So that there's uh, a huge sea lice problem. Um, and you know, fish farmers are are trying to deal with this. They 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 found certain species of fish that eat sea lice, and they've used them. But you know, they they use so many of them that they started overfishing them. They started to disappear. So what do they do? They're fish farmers. They start farming these other species to eat lice. No kidding, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, fish they're, the fish they're using to eat lice off salmon are a fish that they were going out and catching? They were, then yeah. Then they depleted they, the resource? They depleted it, and then they started farming them. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't seem to be able to come up with enough of them to handle the lice. Oh, man. Uh, it's just like some stuff is just never an end to it, man. Right. So there's a lot of problems. <laughs> and and, and you know, a, a lot of people uh, like this idea of moving the uh, fish farms inland uh-huh. in, in enclosed uh, uh, spaces so that there's no escaping and no sea lice can get into them. Like basically uh, making a hatchery for, for uh, well, it's, it's more con- it's more confined than a hatchery, and they're uh-huh. they're you know when they're raising them to full size, 
So what this means is it means tremendously increasing their carbon footprint. Because the original idea of farmed salmon was that they used the energy of the current in the ocean. They didn't use any energy. Um, now they're getting into all of the problems that environmentalists oppose in uh, cattle farming. You know, the uh, nutrient uh, loads and uh, yeah, uh, all of that. And I found it funny that there's environmentalists who oppose cattle farming, but want to bring uh, salmon farming on land. Um, so I don't think that that's the solution. Um, most fish farmers don't think that's the solution either. But, you know, maybe there's some ideas in there that, that work. I, I don't understand why they can't stop escapes. I mean, just, I don't know, make it. Higher walls on the on the pens or something, you know. There was <laughs> a big some... there was a big escapement, and I remember in Puget Sound when I yes. was living there, and it was it was I think it was storm related. Yes, a, a and, massive and, one. And, and they tried got... they tried to get all the fishermen fired up to go catch them, and people were catching them like crazy. Yeah, but, but you know, when people got very excited, I heard people comparing it to the Exxon Valdez oil spill yeah, and yeah. all these things, but. um what happened to those fish? I mean, the ones they didn't catch, they're gone. Nobody knows. They died off. They just, they, just, they can't, farmed salmon can't make it. The only way they can make it is to reproduce with wild salmon, which they can't do in the Pacific. When, uh, when you were finishing your book, when, when, when was the pub date? What's the pub date of your book? It was March of this year. So, yeah, it just came out. So you finished it probably a year ago? Uh, maybe, maybe more. Yeah. I don't remember. When, uh, when you got it done, did you, you know, I'm sure you were happy to have finished a book just cause it's like as a writer and making a book, regardless of the subject and how you might impact that subject. Um, it just feels good to finish them, right. To get them out. Yeah. But did it's you actually, it's actually my 33rd book. Um, and you know, my Makes my me. response to finishing it was to start working on my thirty fourth book. <laughs> but in it, when you finished it, were you just um, knowing the enormity of the problem? You know, if you imagine ahead a hundred years, it just looks really bad for salmon, especially as you lay it out. Uh, when you finished it, did you did you were you uh, you know, like catatonic? from uh, the depression of it all or, or were you? No, cause I'm, I'm just not, I, I, I'm, I'm not like that. I, I just, um, I, I can't believe that we're just going to sit around and, and, and let the earth perish. I, I think that um, we will get together and do things to fix these things. And that's why I write a book like this to, you know, promote this happening. And I think it can happen. And I, you know, I have a daughter who's 19 in college, and those kids are fantastic. Uh, They're so aware of environmental problems and, and so so pissed off at how we've handled things and determined to do it better. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's hope for the world. And there are, you know, programs that are taking down dams, and there's a tremendous number of rivers whose pollution has been cleaned up. And, um, you know, there it's, we aren't without hope. You know, we just can't sit around and say, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, we, we have to make it happen. 
Yeah, the things that we've restored, we restored at great cost. Well, that's one of the problems is that tearing down dams, it turns out, is incredibly expensive. Yeah, and it comes with oh. its own risks. Yes, and you, you really have to kind of rebuild the river after the, the dam comes down. It's not like, you know, you kind of think in your mind, you take down the dam and then the water rushes out and you're back to what you had before. But so much changed because of the dam that, you know, you have to, you have to get a gravel bottom on the river again. Salmonid won't live in a river that doesn't have a gravel bottom if it all gets silted over because of this release from tearing down the dam. You got to do something to fix the bottom. Uh, I used to to live in a community and I'd lived there for quite a while while there was a law, a a statewide and also very local, you know, dialogue around removing a dam in town. And um, some of the people most adamantly opposed to removing the dam were the fishermen because there had been a lot of um, mining upstream on this river and there was a lot of heavy metal and toxic sediment that had built up behind that dam where the dam was kind of an extinct dam it was just the whole reservoir had filled in with toxic sediment and there was a bitter pill of the dam should come down but we need to know that you're going to stir this stuff up and a lot of this shit's going to get sent down river well, that's going back to what I was saying about hatcheries. The first thing you have to do is restore the habitat of the river or it all does no good. I mean, you know, you take down the dam and then the, the, the salmon are going to swim upstream and spawn in the toxic area. No, mm-hmm. I mean, that's not going to happen either. Uh, so uh, every, to, every, decision, every decision has a painful part to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, what's your uh, like favorite bright spot? that gives you hope after working on this project and, and knowing all so much about it, like what, what stands out as a success or a win right now that gives you a little hope? Well, a, a number of things. I mean, these, these projects taking down dams, there's a big one in California. There was the LY in Washington, the Penobscot in Maine. These are huge things that are being done. Um, and, you know, the way in which they were done is very impressive. I mean, the Penobscot happened because a whole coalition of environmentalists and fishing people and state government and federal government and Native Americans and all these different groups got together to make this happen. And when I see something like that happen, I think, wow, you know, we can do it. You know, also, there, you know, there was a poll. I love this. There was a poll in, you know, the Oregonian, the newspaper oh, yeah, in Portland. Yeah. And so the Oregonian did this poll in which an overwhelming majority of, of people th- that they asked in Oregon said that they considered um, saving salmon in the Columbia River more important than any economic activity for the river. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if you had run that poll in other parts of that state, I think you'd have seen dramatically different results, perhaps. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you like you get nowhere, you get nowhere in, in, in Idaho because they've built their whole economy on being a seaport for grain, um, which was made possible by dams. Yeah. 
Um, and, and so many people are economically uh, hitched to that system that, you know, it's basically what it comes down to is them and some fly fishermen. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I don't want people to think they can skip reading the book because of this conversation. So I need to point out to people that we have not covered the saber tooth salmon. Uh, yes, <laughs> but don't co- <laughs> don't cover it. An extinct, and I, and an extinct bygone fish called the saber-toothed salmon. And I'm not telling you if it's coming to your neighborhood or not. <laughs> <laughs> hit, hit people, hit people with another thing or two that uh, another titillating item or two that they'll encounter in your book when they go read the thing for real. Um, I mean the the the, uh, the whole. Um, saga of the Connecticut River, which I guess I'm partial to because I was born on it, but, you know, the one of the greatest salmon rivers in North America, and they've spent billions trying to make it come back. And um, they cannot, they can, they can get the fish in the river, they can get them to, to spawn, and they can get the young to go out to sea, but then they don't return. And yet, Every once in a while, somebody will be in some little tributary and find find a salmon. Really? Yeah. Just wandering around. He's right. like, where is everybody? <laughs> right. Oh, it's dismal. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier going up in the Great Lakes and we had our, you know, our kind of make-believe salmon there, but the you would now and then catch one up in a farmer's drainage ditch. And when you kind of like looked at a map, you'd realize the number of wrong turns that that fish had made. <laughs> it just kept getting, right. just kept getting worse and worse. You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's like, you know, biology got off there cause they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Oh, you can hardly <laughs> blame them. He's like, dude, right. I'm a stranger around here, man. I don't know what's right. going on. <laughs> right. yeah. Oh, you can get a lot of recipes from the book and, you can get a lot of uh, Native American recipes from Alaska that will absolutely horrify you. Yeah, but <laughs> also on that is um, it's it's ex- it's it's exhaustive, not exhausting, but exhaustive <laughs> in that, um, just like how Native Americans caught fish, how they the, the mechanics of it, so many what they did with it. You know, I mean, it's it's a really it's it's there's a lot there it's it's well worth the read we kind of focused here in this conversation on an element of the book and it's a big element and it's the driving force of what's there but everything is very richly contextualized and every um every part of this is poked and prodded and explained and it's not just meant to it's not a book that's just meant to deliver this awful news to you but it's meant to uh, paint this really like lush, elaborate portrait of a beautiful collection of animals. And so I would urge people to go out and check out the book. Again, Salmon by Mark Kurlansky, made available by Patagonia Books, which I, which I, not your, that's not been your publisher in the past. So, no, no, you can. Because uh, since we're all buying things online these days, uh, you can get it from Patagonia, or you can get it—you know—you can get it from Amazon. But you can get it from your local bookstore too. People don't realize that most uh, 
independent bookstores have their own online service that's pretty efficient. And, you know, you can go online, pick the bookstore you like, and they'll order it and ship it to you. All right. Mark, thanks for coming on. Um, we'll, we'll plan one in the future when your next book comes out. Okay. I don't want to tell people what your next book is. I don't want to blow it for you. But when that comes okay. out, we'll... Uh, okay. There's a lot we can talk about in that we'd one. We'd like though. to have you back on. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Thanks, Mark. Great. Great talking to you guys. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that sport dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more.